Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. Two weeks ago, we read how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, brought him back to life, after Lazarus had been dead for four days. That means he was already decomposing. Last week, we looked into the doctrine of our resurrection when the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns for us. And this evening, we'll see how the, the miracle that Jesus worked in raising Lazarus from the dead affected his enemies. And we're going to be reminded that miracles won't convince those who stubbornly refuse to see. That sounds awfully negative. We're not going to end on a negative note, though. But you have to wait until we get there. You're in John 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 45 and read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And some of, the, some of them went to the Pharisees Excuse me. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the region before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking Jesus, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Pray with me, please. Mm. Lord, this is your word. This is your living word. And even though it sometimes perplexes us, we know that you breathe this out, that you inspired the author to write this. You inspired John to write this. These are your words. And so who's sufficient 
to try to explain your words. Only you are. But you promised. You promised that your Holy Spirit, when he comes, would guide us into all truth. And so tonight we ask that you, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to what you wrote here. That you interpret it for us. And that you make us wise unto salvation, which is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For your glory and for our everlasting joy. Amen. In verse 45, we're told that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he, that is Jesus, had done, believed in Jesus. They believed in him as the Messiah. They believed in him as God's promised deliverer. They believed in him in their kind of Messiah and their kind of deliverer. A political Messiah. He's going to get rid of the, of the corruption that's in government. He's going to get rid of the, the Romans, overlords. He's going to be a military Messiah because he's going to drive out all of their enemies and he's going to expand the kingdom of Israel and restore the kingdom of Israel as far as the Euphrates. They were expecting an economic Messiah who would return the days of Solomon when silver was considered nothing. That gold was the only thing that had any real value in Israel. They were looking for someone who's going to make Israel great again. They believed in him, but their faith was misplaced and their faith was, thinking all afternoon how to say this, in error. They weren't believing the right things about the Lord Jesus Christ. But even though many who had been with Mary and Martha and many who saw the Lord Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead believed in him, that he is the Messiah. At least they believe that much. It says in verse 46, but, adver adversative conjunction, doing a 180. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. In other words, they were like spies who were going back to their masters with bad news about the enemy. You won't believe what he's done now. And so, in verses 47 and 48, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together as the Sanhedrin and were saying. Now, the Sanhedrin was 71 religious leaders. They were the 71 religious leaders that had authority to make all religious pronouncements, all doctrinal pronouncements for the Jews, and also they ruled as... A, a civil authority over the Jews, 70 plus the chief priest who acted as the president over the Sanhedrin. Most of them were Sadducees. And you know that we understand who the Sadducees are. They are the priest class. They were the ones who came out of the priestly class. Their vested interest was in the temple and in the sacrifices and in all the rituals of the temple. So they were they pretty much restrained their activity to the temple area. They were what we would call today theological liberals. Because they only believed the first... That's a bad way of saying it. They believed only the first five books of their scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. They didn't hold 
any of the rest of the Old Testament have any authority at all. So they didn't believe anything that the rest of the Old Testament said. The Pharisees, though, even though they were only a, a small party, they did have a contingent at the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees are what we would call theological conservatives. They would be more like us. They believed all of the Old Testament. And they believed everything that the whole scriptures taught. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, therefore, oftentimes were scraping against one another, especially when it came to leading the people into the right interpretation of God's words. They hear that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and they panic. And so they all come together, and they're so discouraged, you hear them saying, What are we doing? This man is doing many signs. All we're doing is talking and complaining about him, but we're not doing anything. While he's doing more and more amazing miracles. They ask, what will we do? If we don't stop him, then all will believe in him. Everybody's going to believe in him as the Messiah. I mean, look how many believe in him already. And if we don't stop him, those people who believe he's the Messiah are going to form it a, a revolution against Rome. Because remember the Messiah, and they would never say it this way, but the Messiah we're looking for is going to be an economic, political, military Messiah. And just look what Jesus has done so far. He has healed Everybody that's come to him that wanted healing, no matter what, what illness, what sickness they had, no matter how severe it was, he healed them. Just think if he was the general of the army. Everybody that's wounded in a battle. He would just walk through all the, the, the military aid stations and touch them and speak over them. They would all be instantly healed. They'd be ready to go back into war again. Look at what he's done. He's healed three dead uh, healed. He's raised three dead people already. And the last one was dead for four days. Already starting to decompose. Just think what he would do as a general. All of his troops that were killed in battle, he'd just walk out there and raise them from the dead. I mean, nobody could defeat us. We can conquer all of our enemies. And just think. They know what kind of Messiah he is, or at least they think they do. This is what he can do. Nothing's going to stop them from rising up and attempting to overthrow Rome because they're going to depend on him to use his godly powers to make sure that we win, to make sure that they win. But we know he's not the Messiah. I mean, he's a sinner. He heals on the Sabbath. So he couldn't possibly be a Messiah. And when they rise up, the Romans are going to crush them. And they're going to take away our place. And they're going to take away our nation. Now we need to ask the question, how did the Romans get involved in this? After the Maccabees had kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes and his lackeys back about three, four hundred years or a couple hundred years, excuse me, a couple hundred years before. Antiochus Epiphanes had been uh, a descendant of one of 
Alexander the Great's generals, and he had Israel, what we call Israel, Palestine, as part of his kingdom. And he was determined to get rid of this Jewish religion junk, get rid of this worshiping this only one God, and he was going to make the, the Jews fully Greek, like he was Greek, and they were going to worship all the Greek gods. So he came in and set up an idol to Zeus in the temple. And he slaughtered a pig to sacrifice to Zeus on the altar. And the Jews would have none of this. And so after a long guerrilla war, they threw Antiochus Epiphanes and all of his Greek soldiers out. And finally, Israel was an independent nation again. But they had enemies all around them. And one of the enemies was called the Nabataeans, which was from Edom. And they were giving them a really hard time. And they couldn't handle it. So the Jewish leaders in 63 BC asked Rome to come in and defeat their enemies for them. And Rome did that. And made Palestine, made Galilee and Samaria and, and Judea a vassal state. But they let them be ruled under their own king. Because the Romans, even though they would conquer a country, they always tried to give that country at least some limited self-government. That would help to calm down the discontent over having Rome as the ultimate overlords there. In 6 BC though, uh, Herod, by the way, was very loyal to Rome. King Herod. The one who had built the temple and who tried to have Jesus murdered. He was a close ally to Rome. In 6 BC though, his son Archelaus proved to be so abusive to the Jewish people and so incompetent as a king that the Jews turned back to Rome and said, would you please remove him? And Rome said, surely. So they got rid of Archelaus and made Judea, Samaria, and Galilee a Roman province, no longer an independent country now. And they set up a Roman governor over them. But still, they had limited self-rule. And they gave that limited self-rule that Archelaus had enjoyed to the Sanhedrin. So now the Sanhedrin has all of the prestige, all of the power, limited power, but still power, and the treasury so you see the influence that the, that the Sanhedrin has, or the Sanhedrin has, over the Jewish people at this time. So when they say, the Romans will come in and take our place, they're talking about, they're going to take away our privileges as Israel's rulers. <clears throat> they also possibly be saying, if they rebel, the Romans will come in and crush the rebellion, and they'll destroy the temple, which is the symbol. This is the center of all Jewish unity. And they'll come in and destroy the temple to take away the place. But also he said they'll take away our nation. You remember Assyria? You remember what Babylon did? We can't let that happen again. So in verses 49 and 50... Then Caiaphas, 
who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the high priest from 18 AD to 36 AD. So when this happened, he was high priest. Said, you know nothing at all. He's sneering at him. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian who lived at this time, and who also turned out to be an ally with the Romans eventually, he describes the Pharisees. <clears throat> now here's a man that's living at the time. He's a Jew living in Judea at this time. And in his writings, he describes the Pharisees as being kind and affectionate toward one another. They despised the common people, but they were very kind and affectionate to one another. But he said the Sadducees were rude and harsh even to each other. So you've got this high priest who is a Sadducee, and he's up there just snarling at them. He says, you know nothing at all. It's better that one man should die in behalf of the people than that the whole nation should perish. So in verse 53, I'm jumping down now, verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now they're making solid plans. They've determined to kill Jesus quite some time ago. But they've not done anything about it. They're making plans now how to kill him. Now they're doing something about him. These rulers are so determined to keep their hold on power, even if it's limited. To keep their hold on the treasury and all of the riches that are available to them. And to keep all of the, the privilege that power brings them. That they're willing to murder God's own Messiah. Now, let's back up to 51 and 52. Because John gives us his comment on what was going on there. John says, Now he, that is Caiaphas, did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas, being high priest, God used him to prophesy. You say, wait a minute. He's wicked. He's murderous. He's willing to kill an innocent man, murder an innocent man, God's own Messiah, for his own interests, so that he can keep his place, and so that he can keep his power and his position. How could God use him? Don't get hung up on that. Remember, God, if he chooses, can use Balaam's donkey to speak. He certainly can use even a wicked human being to speak what he wants him to speak. He says he prophesied. Now, what happens is, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are acting out of their own wicked hearts. They're acting for their own selfish interests. And what they want and what they plan is wicked. But this is where we marvel at the sovereignty of God again. <laughs> but God overrules their intent for his intent. You remember Joseph and his brothers? 
<laughs> and at the end, Joseph says, you intentionally intended this for evil, but God intended what you intended for good. God used your evil plot to save many lives alive until today. <laughs> oh. The Sanhedrin is planning political expediency. God's planning salvation for those who are Israelites indeed, for those who are of the faith of Abraham. And he's planning salvation not only for the Jewish elect, but he's planning salvation for the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now what does that mean? That's not just the Jews who are living outside of Palestine. That's us. That's the Gentiles. Yeah, I think I'll go ahead and say this. But they're not the children of God yet. But when God intends something to happen, when God decrees something's going to happen, this is good as done. And that's why they're called the children of God, even though they've not yet been adopted as children of God. When we get into John 17, we'll see this more clearly. Hmm. He's, God is intending, through our Lord Jesus Christ, to gather together into one those who have been scattered abroad. That sounds familiar. Go back to chapter 10. Look at verse 16. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about who he is as the good shepherd. I have other sheep which are not from this fold, from Israel. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's going to gather together into one flock with one shepherd, the children who are scattered abroad. <clears throat> now we stop here for a second. This is a reminder that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is literally true. There he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, the Sanhedrin murders Jesus to prevent his church and his kingdom from being established. And they murder Jesus to preserve our place and our nation. And just the opposite happens from what they intended. In, seven, in 66 AD, the Jews finally rebelled against the Romans. And in 70 AD, the Roman armies under Titus surrounded Jerusalem. They finally invaded Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. They sacked Jerusalem. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees' day of power was over. They lost their place. And then in 134 A.D., a man by the name of bar son of the star, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. And several of the Jewish leading rabbis said, yes, he's the Messiah. And so the Jews in Palestine rose up in rebellion once again. And the Romans came in this time. They didn't just destroy Jerusalem. This time... They raised the temple to the ground so that all that's left are the foundation stones of the temple. The wailing wall that's left there now. They not only lost their place, 
the Romans said no Jew can live in Palestine now. They drove all the Jews. They expelled them from Palestine. We've had enough of you people. We're scattering you throughout the Near East. They prohibited any Jew from living in Palestine. They lost their place and they lost their nation. (laughs) But Jesus, whom they murdered, rose himself from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus sat down in his father's throne and rules as king of kings and lord of lords. The Lord God omnipotent. And his church, his kingdom has spread throughout all of the world. Rome is history. Everything that Rome was is ruins. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ keeps expanding and keeps growing. I mean, look at us. Who would have Who would ever have believed five years ago that the gospel is spreading like wildfire through Iran? Of all the nations of the world, Iran is receiving the gospel from their own people. (laughs) It's incredible. Yeah, they intended it for evil. But the Lord Jesus Christ intends it for good. God sovereignly always has his way. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Even turning the plans of bloodthirsty, hating men to our own good and to his own glory. Mm. Now, look at verses 54 through 57. And we're told that Jesus no longer continued to walk openly among the Jews because he knows their finally setting in motion a concrete plan to kill him. You say, well, we remember in John 8.20 that they couldn't arrest him, they couldn't touch him, they couldn't stone him, they, they couldn't do anything to him because his hour had not yet come. Why does he have to go away? By the way, he goes away to the northeast of Jerusalem about 15 miles. He's not that far away, but he's far enough that he's out of sight. Then he takes his disciples there with him. But you say, if his hour had not yet come, so therefore they can't touch him, why did he leave? Don't ever forget this, that the God who ordains the ends also ordains the means. And in order to preserve his life, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that his hour had not yet come, pulls away so they can't get to him and then you have the Passover it's about to arrive so you know that we're at the end of the book getting close to the end of the book the rest of the chapters here are going to be about that and many went up to Jerusalem from that region from Ephraim because they're going to purify themselves for the Passover if you have any questions about being purified ask me later and we'll talk about that and they're seeking Jesus and they're asking the question do you think he'll come here or not assuming that he won't because they're planning to kill him the Jew the Sanhedrin has set a plot in motion to kill him and the Sanhedrin has already said if anybody knows where Jesus is report us so that we can arrest him now notice twice the Pharisees have attempted to stone the Lord Jesus. That was in a fit of rage. That was, that was in, in a hot impulse that they were going to stone him. They would have had to have answered to the Romans if they had pulled that off. But 
here they're thinking, ah, we're not going to be so impetuous. Remember, we're making a plan. And the plan is, everything's going to be done legally. We will arrest him. We will try him. We'll turn him over to the Romans. And they will kill him. So everything's neat in their own little plan that they have here. That's the exposition of the passage. But I've got a question. And this is where we end up tonight. Why won't these Jews believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why won't these Jews believe that he is who he says he is? I mean, they're expecting the Messiah. They've got Daniel's prophecy. They know the 430 years to come. They've been looking for the Messiah for at least 30 years. They've got John the Baptist's testimony that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. But you remember, this group of Jews, they didn't believe John either. Hmm. Jesus has kept teaching with authority. And everybody that hears him teach and preach, they marvel at his words and they say, he's not like a preacher. He's not like me. Reading from a book. He's not like me using God's words or somebody else's words to proclaim truth. No, when he speaks, they recognize he speaks with authority out of himself. The only authority I have is the Bible. But when he spoke, they recognized this is, man, this sounds like God talking. But the Sanhedrin didn't believe that either. You say, well, surely the miracles. I mean, look at all the miracles he's performing. All the healings. And all of these healings that he's doing all have many witnesses. I mean, even in the Gospel of John, we've got the nobleman's son that was healed at a distance. We have the cripple that was at Bethesda, and he healed him with a word. We have the man born blind, and he healed him. And then synoptic Gospels. We have the woman with the issue of blood who just touched his cloak and she was instantly healed. But all the lepers that he heals in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What about the paralyzed man? You know, he was brought by his friends. They couldn't get in to see Jesus. So they go up on the roof. By the way, it's Peter's house. They go up on the roof and they start tearing Peter's roof apart. I can just imagine Peter down there. That had to be a hoot. I mean, what are you doing? doing and I can imagine the Lord Jesus and the dust is coming down and he's getting plaster and dust all over his clothes and he's just looking up grinning because he knows what's about to happen remember he healed that paralyzed man with a word which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins I say to you take up your bed and walk and he walked out of there and everybody's jaw hits the ground and they back off and give him plenty of room to exit out. I mean, the miracles. How about the man with the withered hand in the synagogue? Stretch out your hand. And it was restored as whole as the other. How about the man with dropsy at the feast of the Pharisees? And he healed him. And then several blind men that he healed. And that's just a sample. 
in John chapter 21, verse 25, John says, this is just a sample. Said Jesus did so many other things that are not recorded here that if they were all written down, I suppose the books couldn't be contained in the world of all the things he did. What about all these miracles? He fed 5,000 and he fed 4,000 men, plus women and children. That should have spread like wildfire. I mean, you have that many witnesses? And surely the Pharisees had some of their spies there to check things out. He raised the dead. A 12-year-old girl that everybody knows is dead. And he raises her to life. Talatakumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And I love it. He says, we're told she's 12 years old. Typical 12-year-old. He says, give her something to eat. I mean, she's got to be hungry. She's been dead. You know. He raises the widow of Nain's son out of the casket while they're carrying the boy to the graveyard. He raises Lazarus. And I'll say it again. After being dead for four days, decomposing in the tomb, and he raises him from the dead whole. Completely whole. How can they not believe in him? With all of that, how can they not believe in him? Well, I've got a question. Why didn't you believe in him until the day you did? And you say, but they've seen these miracles. They've heard these miracles. These reports about these miracles. But miracles by themselves never convince anybody. Let me give you some examples. Pharaoh. God gives Moses his staff. Gives him his own staff back. But now it's the staff of God. And tells him to go and perform these wonders in Pharaoh's presence. I think it's the first four. It may be just the first three miracles that Moses performs. Pharaoh's magicians duplicate them. In other words, if you don't have enough blood, if, if all your water's turned to blood, well, let's turn what little bit of water's left into blood. That, that makes sense. You don't have enough frogs, well, we'll bring more frogs up for you. You don't have enough flies, we'll make more. So Pharaoh's thinking, this Yehu's just practicing magic. He's just doing the same thing that my magicians do. But when the biting gnats come. That's when the magicians turn to Pharaoh while they're trying to fight the swarms off and they're being eaten alive just like Pharaoh's being eaten alive on his throne. And they say, this isn't magic. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh refuses to believe. He goes through nine plagues and he refuses to believe that it's God doing it. He thinks it's Moses just pulling off magic until God kills his son. Then he finally recognizes this is God's doing. But he still doesn't repent. What about Ahab? He saw fire fall down from heaven onto Elijah's altar and consume the sacrifice, the wood, the stones of the altar, 
the dust around the altar and the water around the altar. Nothing left but a charred hole in the ground. But he didn't repent. He left that hill. You know, Elijah told him, you better get off this hill while you can because lots of rain's coming now. He left that hill and went back to Jezebel and to his Baal worship. What about Nebuchadnezzar? He saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown into the fiery furnace. He saw four walking around when he threw three in. And he sees them walking? You know, it's like they're taking a stroll? Look at that, boy. Look at how those embers are burning. And he looked, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. And they check them out and their hair's not singed. Their clothes aren't singed. There's not even the smell of the smoke on them. And he says, Blessed is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls them the Most High God. And he says, Nobody ever better say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he has the, his dream. Then nobody can interpret the dream. They call him Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel says, Oh, king, I, I wish this was for your enemies and not for you. He said, This is what God has decreed about you that you're going to be acting like an animal for seven years. And the dew of heaven is going to cover you for seven years. And you're going to eat grass for seven years. Because, so please repent and these things won't happen. And Nebuchadnezzar refused. He said, thank you, son. Appreciate that. And he's out there walking around on his palace and saying, look at all this that I have done. And as soon as he said it, his reason was taken away from him and he became like an animal for seven years. He ate grass like an animal. His hair grew like feathers. His claws were like eagle's claws. His fingernails like eagle's claws. And he said, at the end of seven years, at the end of the appointed time, he looked up and God restored his reason to him. And God sent, now can you imagine, this is incredible. God sent all of his counselors and all of his advisors and all, all of his ministers to him to make him king again when does that happen the guy's an animal and now we're going to go out there and make him king and let's go find him and when they find him he's in his right mind and they bring him back and he gets a haircut he gets a shave and he gets fresh clothes and a bath and they make him king again and so what does Nebuchadnezzar say he said God most high made me king but he doesn't repent. And he still worships Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. And I wonder if he isn't in his mind somehow equating the king of heaven and God most high somehow with Marduk. You see, he saw those miracles. But it didn't make him a believer in Yahweh. And Yahweh alone. He's still unconverted. Miracles don't convince anyone. Because Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says we're dead. They were dead. All they see is wonders. 
They have no spiritual perception at all. They don't deny that what Jesus has been doing is miracles. I mean, they can see that. But by whose power? In Matthew they say he's doing it by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. The more wonders they hear about, the more they deny that Jesus is doing what he's doing with the finger of God. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 6. Why don't they believe in Jesus when they've seen all these miracles? Look at verse 9. This is Yahweh talking to Isaiah, but it also applies here. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull. Their eyes dim. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Make their hearts insensitive. The more they see, the more they can't feel the impact of what they're seeing. Make their ears dull so they can't barely hear anything at all. Make their eyes dim. Make them blind. It's funny, this is just where we are in John is just two chapters after Jesus healing the man born blind. And you remember what he said at the end of that? He said, for this reason I've come into the earth that the blind may see and that those who think they see may be made blind. And what do the Pharisees say? Are we blind too? You said it. You said it. Make them blind. They have no eyes to see. They have no ears to hear. You get the idea? The more they see and hear what Jesus is saying and doing, the more insensitive their hearts become, the deafer their ears become, the blinder their eyes become, the more calloused they become to the evidence that's right in front of them. And the more they harden their hearts and resist and reject God's own plain testimony right there in front of them. From the beginning, these leaders have already rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and seen, seen him as a threat because he threatens their vested interests. Back there, we're back in, in John chapter 11. What's their vested interest? Our place and our nation. The authority we have over them. Pharaoh's vested interest was, listen, if I bow to Yahweh, I'm going to lose my slave labor. And I'll lose my prestige before my people. Ahab's vested interest was, I'll lose my prestige. And I'll have to publicly repent and go back to Yahweh. Man, that's, that's humiliating. And by the way, I'll have to deal with Jezebel then. I mean, she is really pushing Baal worship. And I like Baal worship. And she has already killed a lot of the prophets of God. I don't know what she would do to me. No, it's my vested interest to just continue with her. Nebuchadnezzar, if I turn to Yahweh alone as the only God and as my God, I'll lose my kingdom because my people love Marduk and I love Marduk. I mean, Marduk gave me this kingdom. 
You really think so, Nebuchadnezzar? They've set their hearts of stone against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they refuse any evidence that should have broken them down. And they should have caused them to repent. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's their hearts. They have deceived themselves. They have set themselves on a desperately wicked course. And nobody's going to turn them back from them. No amount of miracles is going to convince them. They are hopelessly wicked. And that's why they don't. And that's why they won't. Recognize Jesus for who he says he is. God's promised Messiah. The Son of God. And what he's already said in John chapter 8. Yahweh himself in the flesh. That's why miracles don't convince anybody. That's why... Like Jesus said, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins. And these men are headed to die in their sins. Let's don't stop there. Wait a minute. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus came by himself without any of the rest of these yahoos to see Jesus at night. And again, don't get all hung up on why he came at night. You know why he came at night? It's like Eric said, because it was dark. That's why he came at night. We don't know why he came at night. Nicodemus said, we know you are a teacher from God. He was wrong. He's God coming to teach. But anyway, he said, we know that you've come from God. That early in Jesus' ministry, he's seen the miracles. Wait a minute. He's being convinced by what Jesus does and what Jesus says. And look, Nicodemus is going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. He's going to risk everything to join Joseph of Arimathea and bury Jesus honorably after he's crucified. Hmm. What about some of the priests after the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, The word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They were being converted. They were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they were dead in trespasses and sins, just like the Sanhedrin is dead in trespasses and sins, why do they believe and repent? It's because God Almighty, the God of all grace, caused them to believe. Just like he caused Nicodemus to believe. Ezekiel 36, you know it. I will give them a new heart and I will put a new spirit in them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh and I will cause them to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and to do them. In Proverbs chapter 21 we're told the king's heart is in the hand of Yahweh and he turns it wherever he wants to. God caused them 
to believe what they saw. God calls them to believe what they heard from Jesus. God can cause even Jesus' most vicious human enemy to come to spiritual life and to wholeheartedly trust in our Lord Jesus Christ and gladly bow to him as Lord. And yes, I'm talking about Saul of Tarsus. God gets great glory and delight in bringing spiritually dead enemies to life and giving them new hearts that are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer had no problem at all helping to beat Paul and Silas, throwing them in the bottom of the, of the dungeon and fastening their feet in the stocks so that they couldn't lay down and sleep and get any rest that night. He was no friend of the gospel. He was no friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was devoted to Rome and not to God. And yet the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that when he was converted there is more joy in heaven in the presence of God over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need repentance who have already come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ think of the power it takes to turn a God despising arrogant sinner into a God loving humble disciple <laughs> to convert a man's will from I will not have this man to rule over me to Lord, what would you have me to do? Think of the power it takes to do that. And then think about Abraham and Sarah's three visitors. And Yahweh says to Abraham, next year this time I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah's hiding back inside the tent, just far enough away where they can't see her but she's definitely close enough where she can hear everything that's going on out there and she laughs inside of herself because she's thinking my shriveled up dead dry womb and my husband's utterly impotent we're both far beyond childbearing age and so she laughs at the idea and Yahweh says why did Sarah laugh and she panics and she says, I did not laugh. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? If he can raise a physical corpse, that is Lazarus, he can certainly raise the spiritually dead to life. Now here's the application. This is where we wrap it up tonight. Have you ever not only been tempted to think or to say, but have you ever said, is there any hope for, you fill in the blank, to be converted? Is there any hope for, you fill in the blank, to repent and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Because the Bible says, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He did it in us. He did it in some of us who were his enemies. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? Remember what he says in Romans. <clears throat> I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Regardless of their attitude toward me now. 
regardless of how stiff-necked and rebellious they are toward me now. Regardless of anything about it has nothing to do with them. <laughs> because it doesn't depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 16. Is there any hope that you fill in the blank will ever be saved? Is anything too hard for God? You remember what Gabriel told Mary? How can these things be? I, I'm a virgin. He said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing. So, keep asking for their conversion. Keep seeking for their conversion. Keep knocking for their conversion. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? He's still giving new hearts and new spirits. I mean, every year we baptize one or two or three in our congregation. And it's none of this business of just walking down the aisle. Yeah, I'm going to ask Jesus some heart. Yeah. No. They make a profession of faith, usually to one of the elders first, or all of the elders first, and say, Christ has changed me. God has changed me. And our elders began to help them grow in their faith. And we watch them for months and months. And then we say, now's the time. And we present them to the church. And they read their testimony. And they're baptized upon profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're incorporated into our church. He's still converting. He's converting them by the thousands in Laos, in Vietnam, in Nigeria, and in Iran. He's, he's converting all over the United States all the time, which we're just not seeing. But it's happening. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? He's still the sovereign who is converting sinners because he chooses to convert sinners by his own sovereign grace and for his own glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed. <laughs>